We had the Bitcoin ETF launch this week and a lot of people are celebrating that it was the biggest ETF launch in history. And yeah, well, it was the biggest ETF launch in history. If you look at the numbers, you can see that over $4.6 billion of the new Bitcoin ETF was traded. Grayscale, $2.3 billion. iShares, which is the BlackRock one, a billion dollars. Fidelity, $712 million. ARK, $288 million. And so the list goes on to give us a total of $4.6 billion. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the biggest ETF launch in history. But we shouldn't be celebrating. And if you look at the price of Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin is telling you exactly that. You shouldn't be celebrating. The price of Bitcoin actually went down. And if you look at the market, the market is, well, mainly red. Today, I'm going to show you why the Bitcoin ETF launch, which everyone is celebrating as the biggest and most successful ETF launch in history, was actually a total flop. The Bitcoin ETF launch failed. And we're going to talk about what happens next, because when the market realizes that the Bitcoin ETF launch actually failed, well, well, what's going to happen next? How are they going to respond? We also got inflation numbers this week. And if you look at the inflation numbers, the inflation numbers were a little bit higher than the forecast. So let's have a look at the inflation numbers that we were expecting 3.2% and we got 3.4%. Now, this is just the beginning of a new inflation narrative because of what's happening in the Red Sea. Today, I've got Raoul Paul with us. And what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the ETF launch and whether or not things are going to get better. And then we're going to be talking about whether there's anything to worry about on the bigger economy, because Raoul Paul has been calling for the economy to go up, up, up. Is that still his thesis? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So we've got a big show today. Let's do this, guys. Tell me the truth. Were you celebrating the ETF launch? Did you believe that it was the biggest ETF launch in history? Well, by numbers, yes, it was the biggest ETF launch in history. You can't argue with the numbers. But later on today, we are going to dig into the data. And I'm going to show you that the ETF launch was not only a spectacular fail, but actually more money flowed out of Bitcoin on the ETF launch than flowed into Bitcoin on the ETF launch. That's that's a big thing. And I'm going to show you this. And at some point, the market's going to realize this. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what is the market going to do? I read this tweet here by, by Chris Berniski, and he says, look, ready to be wrong here. But looking at the froth, I can't help but wonder if this will be reminiscent of the Coinbase IPO, a momentous event that caused many to expect much higher afters, but instead was the top for a couple of quarters for Bitcoin. So is that what's going to happen? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're also going to be talking about the general economy and whether we're going on this up only melt up going for a blow off top. And for that, I've got Raul Paul with us and I've got Henrik with us. And Henrik, he actually coined this, this blow off top uh, narrative, which has been going around. And believe it or not, he still thinks we're going to get a blow off top, but he believes that the blow off top is going to end before June, and then we're going into the biggest recession that we've ever seen. He says worse than 1929. That's exactly what he says. Worse than 1929. So we've got a massive, massive, massive show today. Holy shit, we've got a massive show today. If you're not already a subscriber, you know what you need to do. Subscribe to the channel. Join the hundreds of thousands of subscribers on our channel, over 700,000 subscribers and growing very, very, very fast. We're going to bring you crypto love and we're going to bring you crypto wisdom and I'm actually going to bring you a weekend show as well. Also, 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 if you haven't already smashed the like button, destroy the like button, obliterate the like button, let people know that we're here and we bring you crypto love and we bring you crypto wisdom today on this big, big, big banter Friday. So with that in mind, 
and the formality is out of the way let's get into the alpha of the show today let's start off by looking at the celebrations of yesterday and there were lots of celebrations i saw them on twitter you saw them on twitter eric balkunas who's been covering this etf narrative a lot he came out and look what he said he said over there were seven hundred thousand individual trades today in and out of the 11 spot ETFs. for context that is double the number of of uh, trades for the qqq which is the nasdaq etf so a lot more grassroots action and you can see this is the breakdown and a total of like $4.3 billion worth of volume done on the ETF. And that's the biggest volume ever done on one day for an ETF, for a, a series of ETF launches. So very, 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 very much successful. And a lot of people were celebrating. Twitter was celebrating. Memes were celebrating. People were on Twitter spaces. Everyone was celebrating. Well, not everyone. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, she wasn't celebrating at all. She never celebrates when, when, when crypto does well. She said, the SEC.gov is wrong on the law and wrong on the policy with respect to the Bitcoin ETF decision. If the SEC is going to let crypto burrow even further into our financial system, then it's more urgent than ever that crypto follow the basic anti-money laundering rules. She can never be happy for crypto. She will do whatever she can to, to, um, to, uh, 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 to knock down crypto and make sure that she's unhappy. She's like the Grinch of crypto. I wrote this tweet over here, which, which uh, I hope you guys, I really hope that you guys listen to me. On this tweet I said, Dear America, please promise me that in the next elections later this year, you will vote to remove these corrupt cl clowns from running your country. I know that they're really trying hard to manipulate the elections already. I see uh, them allowing millions of illegal immigrants and removing ID requirements for voting so that they can vote and vote for the, for the incumbents. Despite this, please promise me that you will do whatever you can to remove them from running your country. You cannot continue to run a country like this. I also saw that Twitter strikes again and the, uh, the community noted the American court decided approving Bitcoin ETF is lawful. The DC Circuit Court of Appeals rejected the SEC's rejection of, uh, of the grayscale bid to convert it. So she even got like a community note. I mean, honestly, fuck her. Seriously. That, uh, ooh, there goes the video of YouTube. Um, Zero Hedge also tweets, he says, uh, money laundered in the, uh, using the USD since 2017 and money laundered using Bitcoin since 2017. So uh, all of that's happening. Um, also, not everyone was happy. We also got Vanguard, who is one of the world's biggest asset managers. In fact, I did some research. They've got $7.6 trillion under management. And they came out surprisingly and they said that they're, not, they're going to block customers and they're not going to let people uh, uh, invest their own money into uh, uh, G, uh, ETFs. And I mean, there's a lot of ironies when it comes to this. I'll, I'll show you some of the ironies when it comes to this. The first thing is, what does Vanguard actually mean? Vanguard, the definition of Vanguard is a group of people leading the way in new developments or ideas. The experimental spirit of the modernist Vanguard. And Vanguard is the same people that have now blocked access to the, the Bitcoin ETF. And they're starting to face the backlash. What you're seeing is that A, on Twitter, people are saying boycott Vanguard, leave Vanguard. A lot of people actually started closing their Vanguard accounts, um, which is, I mean, another irony here is, did you know that Vanguard actually allowed the trading of GBTC, which swung from a premium, 50% premium to a 50% discount, and they won't allow the GBTC trade? Something is fishy here. And I mean, Scott Malker has gone, Full, full, full tilt against Vanguard. So um, literally his whole timeline is people uh, uh, boycotting Vanguard. Holy shit, this happened. Boy boycott Vanguard now trending. Um, 
he's gone full tilt. He seems to be very upset. Maybe he's actually got money on Vanguard. Maybe that's why he's he's so he's so upset. Um, I tweeted this and I said this is a, a live visual of investors migrating from Vanguard to Fidelity when they realize they can't buy Bitcoin. Obviously, that's not happening, but I really wish that it would start happening because people, it's your money. How can they tell you with your money what you can and can't do with your money? People actually starting to transfer their money out of, the, out of their Vanguard accounts. Now, I don't think this is going to be big and I don't think Vanguard really give a shit, but it's just the sentiment uh, is not good. And I, I, I said it very simply. I said, look, we can't expect everyone to accept Bitcoin from the beginning. We didn't accept Bitcoin from the beginning. The first time I was told about Bitcoin, I said it's magic, garbage, digital internet money, which is never, ever going to work, and it's going to be a passing fad. And I landed up only buying my first Bitcoin at $500. You know, I could have bought it at, at like a dollar. So not everyone accepts Bitcoin immediately, but eventually everyone lands up paying the price they deserve. And Vanguard and their client base will actually play the price that they deserve because of this bad decision, unless they make a good decision and migrate from, from, from Vanguard. And the truth is, we were watching all of this news last night. We were watching it here on, on, on the Banter Newsroom. Now, you should be watching all your news on the Banter Newsroom because this is where all the news happens live. Uh, I, I mean, great news that I can probably share with you guys now is that we've had some of the biggest websites in the world actually reach out to us and say, look, we love the Bubbles product, but we love the newsroom the most. Um, can we license just this widget of the newsroom? And very soon, you're going to see it in some of the biggest websites in the world. I can't mention names because we are under NDA. But what they said is the reason why they love the newsroom so much is because it's not like a Bloomberg newsroom where it just sends headlines of, of news. Here we actually have um, we actually have banter. We actually like it's it's news, but it's also banter from our 40 researchers. And you get this tool absolutely free. Just go to Banter Bubbles uh, and you can use it. Um, all right, I, I do want to break down the numbers with you. I do want to break down the numbers with you as to why I say the Bitcoin ETF launch was like the worst launch ever in history. I do want to do that. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that this week, Gary Gensler got a lot of egg all over his face when, you remember this, uh, you remember that he he is, um, where he, the reason why the SEC got hacked and the announcement for the ETF came out before the announcement for the ETF is because X says that, that they didn't have two-factor authentication enabled at the time. They were negligent with cybersecurity, and so they got hacked. And, I mean, they say you should use strong passwords and passphrases, set up multi-factor authentication, keep alerts turned on. Um, so Gary got a lot of egg on, your face, on, on his face. Now, I don't want you guys to get egg on your faces. And specifically, I don't want you guys not only to get egg on your faces and get hacked, but I don't want you guys to lose money in this bull market. Because remember, we have two jobs in this bull market. The first job in the bull market is to make life-changing money. And the next job in the bull market is to keep the life-changing money. Now, imagine you make life-changing money and then you can't keep it because, and the reason why you can't keep it is because you lose it to a hack or you lose it because the government comes to you and says, uh, 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 we tracked your IP address. And we know that you've been trading on an exchange where you haven't been allowed to trade. Or we know that you've used this DeFi protocol. Because you see, every time that you deal with, uh, with, uh, with a website, any website in the world, you give them this thing called an IP number. Now, now they, they know exactly where you are. Like, you see, I'm not using a, a VPN because this is the, the work computer. Um, you can also see the IP address. You can see everything. And that's what every DeFi application sees. Now, you want to be surfing anonymously. You don't want to have egg on your face. And that's why... You should take out a VPN. If you're in crypto, take out a VPN. To get a VPN, you click here. There's a link below. Click on the link below. 
You pay $2.91 per month, less than $3 to protect your fortunes. And now look, not only do you get a VPN which completely masks your IP address, and I'll show you in a second how it masks your IP address. Um, in fact, let me, let me show you that right now. So if you want to mask your IP address, all you do is you decide where do you want to be surfing from. You click, let's say if I click Latvia, I'm not going to click it because then I'm going to get disconnected. Then from that point on, the IP address will change and everyone will think that I'm in Latvia. All the providers will believe that I'm, I'm actually in Latvia. So listen, for $2.90 a month, you get that. You get password protectors, so you don't, the same thing doesn't happen to Gary Gensler. You get your files protected with a private cloud uh, and a whole lot of other features that protect you online and you support the channel. And if you go and want to support the channel even further, go and get threat protection. This blocks all the malicious websites. And if you've just started in crypto, you're going to get attacked by a whole lot of malicious websites and you one day you're going to prove the wrong contract and when you do, you're going to lose all your money. So listen, for $2.90 a month, that's what's going to happen. Um, all right, let's get into the numbers. Now, I now want to show you why I think the ETF launch was the most, was a very bad ETF launch. It was really, really, really a bad ETF launch. Now, everyone was celebrating, but I don't think they actually read the numbers. So let's look at the numbers. Let's actually break down the numbers. So yes, this is true. The Bitcoin ETF volume hit $4.6 billion on the first day, breaking records. The GLD ETF took almost two years to get to 1.5 billion in asset under management. The Bitcoin AUM is going to crash that. He's right. I mean, the Grayscale Trust has over $28 billion in AUM. Let's look at these numbers for a second. Grayscale GBTC Trust, $2.3 billion. BlackRock, a billion dollars. Fidelity, $712 million. And if you add up all of these totals together, well, you get $4.6 billion. You can see that's the $4.6 billion over there. Now, let's analyze the numbers even further. So if we, if we look at these numbers even further, we say, okay, there was $4.6 billion traded. You can make an assumption that since Grayscale has been, has got the highest fees, 1.5%, and already have $28 billion in, in, in AUM, their fees are seven times more expensive than anyone, any other of the providers. The other providers have got fees ranging from 0.2 to 0.4. Grayscale's got 1.5%. So what you can make an assumption is that everybody that traded the Grayscale uh, uh, GBTC actually traded to exit the GBTC and there were no purchases of GBTC because no one would purchase something seven times more expensive in one place than anywhere else. Then the rest of this, this is the total traded. This is not the total money that was put in, but the total traded. So you've got to make an assumption that not 100% of the remaining $2.3 billion was all buying. Some of it was buying and selling. So let's say that this was 80% buying. So 80% of 2.3 billion, 1.7 billion was buying. The net selling was 2.3 billion. Therefore, I would estimate that about half a billion dollars actually flowed out of Bitcoin yesterday on their first day. Maybe not half a billion, maybe $250 million, which makes the net effect of the first day of the Bitcoin trading actually negative in inflows towards Bitcoin. Now, do I think this is a, an emergency? Do I think it's a disaster? I don't think you can judge the ETF on the first day. I also think that a lot of people were waiting to exit their GBTC position and said, look, I'm going to exit the GBTC position on, on, uh, 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 in the first day. And, and that's what they did. So it's too soon to judge. But I am raising an alarm bell that while everybody's celebrating, we have to be smarter. 
We have to know that this wasn't such a momentous occasion. That volume means nothing. That they always say turnover means nothing. You know what it means? What means something is what's left over. And that's what it's about. Anyway, that is why I break it down. That is why I say, Ryan says, that this was actually a failure. I did tweet about it. You can go and read my tweet. Um, but it's not up to me. It's not, it's not all about me. I want to also bring in Ralph Paul and Henrik, and I want to talk to them about the ETF, and I want to talk to them about the, the melt-up, and I want to talk to them about whether we're going to get this parabolic bull run that they're actually both talking about. Henrik says it's going to end after six months. Ralph says it's going to continue forever. Today, we're going to make that decision. So let's do this and let's start off with the ETF. Guys, it was a big week this week. It was the week of the ETF approval. I guess you could say it was like 15 years in the making. Now we have an ETF. How big do you think this news is? How much money do you think is going to flow into the ETF? How, how, how momentous is this? Well, I'm going to start with you. It depends what time horizon, right? You know, let's not worry about what happens in the first you know, week, two weeks, three weeks. But over time... You know, I think of this as two different ways. Those of us have been in this space for a long time. It's like our IPO. You know, we were seed investors in Bitcoin or Series A investors, Series B, Series C, and then eventually we get the IPO. So, but, you know, like the IPOs of the 90s, I think it usually does, they've done, they do pretty well, um, which is we'll see a lot of follow through. So I'm expecting, you know, the same as everybody else, the kind of $50 billion over the course of the year. But there is no insanity like crypto insanity as you know, Ran, is when things start happening, people become, they lose their minds with FOMO and everything else. So there is no real precedent for a 70 vol asset that's in a roaring bull market coming to be available to every single person who owns a brokerage in the United States. So anything could happen. It could be a wild ass bubble. Um, I don't think it's going to be a damp squib. So when the ETF got approved, I, I mean, obviously I was excited like everybody else, but there was a part of me which was like, I'm giving away my baby. Like, this is our baby. We, we nurtured it until such time as the institutions could come in and eventually it became institutionalized. And the one thing I loved about it was the fact that it wasn't part of the institutional money flow process, right? Because, you know, institutions are like risk on or risk off, and it's either commodities or not commodities, or it's either tech or not tech. One of the things I loved about Bitcoin was the fact that it didn't play into those cycles. And I'm almost like now in a position where I'm thinking the bigger this ETF mania gets and the more money that goes into the ETF, the more Bitcoin, the more the larger percentage of Bitcoin that's going to be owned by institutional capital. And then I'm kind of worried that this non-correlated asset becomes correlated with institutional flows. Is that, is that like a valid concern or am I missing something? Look, they're all correlated anyway. They always were. They were correlated by the macro business cycle. And they always have been. So they are correlated assets. But the rebellious aspect of building a new financial system, you can either take it as, well, Gary's won and we've kind of put it inside Wall Street's walls, or we put the Trojan horse inside of Wall Street. I'll go with the latter. Henrik, what do you think? Well, I um, I think to a large extent that uh, Raul is right in what he says here. I, I mean, I, I pretty much align with that. I think it's uh, it's going to be a absolutely a new new world when uh, when when we see this uh, you know setting off for real. So uh, so I think uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, also what's your point to here a lot of FOMO, a lot of euphoria when it, you know when this starts to to take off. So uh, so. You know, even on the short-term basis, I think it's going to be a big thing. Um, but again, also what we're going to talk about later on today, I think it's uh, 
there will be a kind of a pause in that or even when we get to what I think will be a somewhat of a economic slowdown later um, this year and, and also into next year. How relevant is it that you've got 11 of the world's or 10 or 11 or however many of the world's biggest, most powerful asset managers all gunning for position, trying to be the best launch, trying to be the the quickest ETF to get the most amount of capital. We've seen some capital starting to flow in. Um, how relevant is that in the big scheme of things? So it's, the way I see it, you've now got 11 of the world's biggest sales uh, instit- um, institutional product sales forces all racing to be one of, say, the top three ETFs, because I don't think the market needs 15 Bitcoin ETFs. Um, and so I guess they're all going to go for positions. Ral, do you think that that's going to cause, like, is it the sales competition that I'm imagining? Yeah. Yes, of course. Because people see they've got higher fees in this than traditional products. And it's a product that really appeals to people because it has a very different risk reward profile. And particularly by launching it in the middle of a Bitcoin halving year, you know, the macro crypto spring to summer, the probability of attracting quite a lot of assets is huge. That I'm sure they haven't thought about how they're gonna deal with a crypto bear market when everybody hates you. But, you know, Kathy Wood's just gone through and that, she managed to get through alive. Um, but, uh, you know, BlackRock will be utterly hated for you lost me all this money. We've all been around this cycle for a long time. We know how it works. We've become immune to anything. Uh, uh, you know, anything. My, my wife, my, I spoke to my wife earlier this week when we had the whole SEC shenanigans and, and you know, the, the leaked announcement or the, the hacked Twitter account. And my, when I told my wife what happened, she like, her jaw dropped. And she's like, wow, are you guys all okay? I'm like, this is just a normal day for us. We're just going to just carry on. Like, this is, this is nothing. Like, we've been through Luna. We've been through FTX. We've been through, this, this is nothing. This is just a fake announcement. This is, this is, uh, this is absolutely nothing. Um, I do want to talk about the next trade. And I think that the next trade is, is you know, it's something that we saw um, th- when the announcement came out, the fake announcement came out where Bitcoin dumped. And all of a sudden, what you, you saw is you saw the Bitcoin ETH pair or the ETH BTC pair completely shoot up. Do you think that now the institutions are going, okay, we've got the Bitcoin ETF and it's time to move on to the next one, which is logically going to get an ETF and that's going to be not, ETH. It, it's not the institutions, it's us lot. Hmm. We're the so, people front running it. So we're going, okay, ETH next. Let's pile our money into ETH. And that's what's going on. And that will go. I mean, I think last time I came on the show, I said, this is the next big trade, you know, amongst the majors is this switch. And if I look at the chart pattern, it's this giant wedge over a period of time. In fact, we showed it on the show last time, this giant wedge pattern in the ETH Bitcoin cross on the monthly chart. Then, you know, I use a lot of DMARC for my technical analysis. It gave... Um, daily, weekly, and very soon a monthly nine count. That's the ETH BTC chart. Yeah, and if you actually, if you make sure you join the lows and bottom, it's just basically touched the bottom trend line. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's touched. So, so when I look at the ETH BTC chart, as you say, this is it on the monthly, and you can see it, it's literally, literally, literally just touched the bottom, or maybe you could even say trying to break down below the bottom. Do you think this is the bottom of the ETH BTC chart? Do you think that now we get the bounce and we, and we start going up? Well, my view is yes. I don't know. Henrik, what do you think? You're a technical analyst as well. For me, yeah, it is. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I, I also use a lot of time on, on, on analyzing uh, momentums. And what you see there is that you have what you call this divergence, which means that momentum is starting to push in before you actually see the, uh, the, the, uh, the effect on price. So absolutely. I think also we are 
I think we actually did see the bottom in um, in that ratio, and I, I think it could yeah, shoot up a lot, you know, very very quickly. Honestly, yeah, would you? I'm the same view. Would you say that right now your money, if you're looking for for capital appreciation, your money is better in Ethereum than it is in Bitcoin? If you're looking, say, for the next twelve months. Yeah, that would be my guess. And also, I, I would think also that the, the Bitcoin dominance is starting to vein now, and you'll see that all of the altcoins will starting to pick up. And you've seen that in, in various uh, altcoins already, but I think it will come into a lot of others as well. So, uh, so yeah, we're seeing the normal cycle that I, that I also think that uh, Raul is referring to. What do you think the probability is of an ETH ETF in the next 12 months? And I say that because the Bitcoin ETF, you could say, was largely probably approved because of the court's decision where they said that, that if they approve a futures ETF, then you can't not approve a spot ETF. They, they call it arbitrary and capricious. Um, and we do have an ETH futures ETF. So, I mean, logically to me, I'm like thinking, well, this is like a, the biggest no-brainer in history. Like, we've got an ETH futures ETF. Next, we're going to get an ETH ETF. I mean, it's, am, I, am I making it too simplistic? Am I missing something? No, I mean, even the guys from Bloomberg who've been on top of all of this, um, have said, listen, it's probably a 60, 70% chance that will happen. Makes sense to me. Um, again, if you've got the two biggest assets, just think of Gary's mind, right? Gary Gensler. His mind is, let's get these behind Wall Street. Let's give Wall Street a share of this. Let's get it into my jurisdiction. Then, of course, you want the second largest asset. The rest will probably leave to us for a while until we get a change of SEC or whatever. But he wants to make sure that they've kind of got the guardrails around the two big ones. So I... I think they want it. So is, is it safe to say that probably the ETH trade right now is probably the, the from a risk reward, a risk return point of view, see, it sounds like the ETH trade is the lowest risk trade on the market at the moment, if, if our thesis is right. Yeah, Henrik, what do you think? Henrik's chart is as he thinks it is, and I think it is. You've got a perfect place to put a stop loss. You can even size the trade well. You know, it's actually just a lovely, lovely opportunity. You don't get many of these like no. this, particularly where daily, monthly, uh, daily, weekly, monthly charts kind of line up. It's like they usually have a very high probability of success. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I think it's the, that ratio and it's all over also in the in the, in the charts of uh, Ethereum itself. I think there is uh, you know, a lot of momentum building and, uh, and we'll start to see that move coming really soon. So I think it's... Uh, yeah, Ethereum, and as I said, also the other, a lot of altcoins will, will do tremendously well over the next coming weeks and months. Okay, so now, so if you were going to put, if you had $10,000 and you had to decide where to invest it, Bitcoin or ETH, and you were looking at like risk-adjusted returns, where would you put your money, Bitcoin or ETH, for 12 months? Rel? ETH. ETH. Same. Okay, so, so I'm glad we got that out the way. Now I'm going to move a little bit lower down the risk curve, or a little bit higher up the risk curve, and talk about uh, Solana. So this has been, the reason why I'm asking is because you've had a trade where Sol has appreciated from a low of like $13 and it's trading at about $100 now, give or take. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you guys the same question. Would you be putting money into ETH now or would you be putting money into Sol now if you had to choose one? Do you think that Solana has had its run? So stick up. Stick up the weekly Sol ETH cross and it'll give you your answer. Okay, so Sol ETH. You want, to, you want to take Sol ETH and you want to see it on the weekly. No problem. Sir, there yeah, is your There's your weekly on right. Sol ETH. Doesn't really look like there's anything to stop that. You know, a bit of consolidation that breaks the new highs. 
That's so you, my view. You're thinking like a little like a little cup and handle being printed here. You're, you're thinking about standing standing along those yeah, lines. Everyone's going to get distracted by ETH as the new shiny thing. Uh, you know, Bitcoin and Solana lag for a bit. We do a nice little cup and handle, and then it just explodes to new all-time highs versus ETH. That's a bit my bet for the whole cycle, as you know. Yes. Henrik, what do you think? I know it's been, well, before we go into it, I know it's been your bet for the whole cycle, but I'm not sure that your bet was that we'd go from $15 to $100 so quickly. I mean, I, I, I must say that even I was caught completely, I've been the biggest Solana bull for, for the longest period of time. I was buying Solana at 10, 11, 12, 13, the community knows that. But even I got caught off guard with, this, the, with the pace and momentum which Solana accelerated. I've got to be honest. Like The speed at which I Solana recovered. A, I didn't expect a 10x this year. No. <laughs> yes. I, I know. I would like to see the, the momentum analysis on this one. I, I think there, there could be um, a situation also where you could see a more, more of a, a significant pullback in it. But I couldn't tell from this. And I don't follow it uh, really closely. So... Uh, uh, the Sol uh, Ethereum um, ratio, but um, yeah, I, I, I go with Raul also there. I say it's uh, you know hell of a ride, and uh, I think there's some some um, some kind of consolidation there, and then you can easily see it go further on. Henry, you're a, you're an um, Elliott Wave person, right? Hmm. Can you bring that chart back up? Sure, Rand. Sorry. Um, so that to me looks like a one two, and then one two of three. So you're saying the one yeah, two would be the, the one two would be so one here one, two one so big one big one one big two two no two, so sorry one is up two yeah. is down yeah then one of three <laughs> pullback yeah. is two of three it trades like three of three Henrik right it just goes vertical and we should be probably four of three five of three and then. The big wave four, finish the whole move. Or it could be, or it could be an A, B, and C. What you see from the absolute bottom, which means that you have an A first, and then you have a B, which you call the second wave, and then you have a C wave, which is not unfolding. That will give you a little more upside, but not. Uh, I mean, that will give you like what you had there, the what you call the first of the third wave. Uh, that will give you there. So, but still, some more upside, absolutely. But I, that's why I'm saying I would like to look at the momentum analysis on this to see if they start to see some exhaustion in the trend and uh and yes but I even if the, I, I guess even if there is some exhaustion in the trade in the trend i think we're both looking at we're all looking at this on a one or two year time horizon we're not looking at it on, on the next two weeks like maybe in the last month or two months Solana's had a big run but in in the next year or two i can't i can't see anything holding this thing back i've got to be honest I think that's a little little of a stretch to call that uh, you know based on this chart a two year horizon and then say what what will this do? I mean, again, if, because if you look at the bigger picture and the macro picture, I don't think that's a very rosy picture. That will very rosy outlook we have there. And well, I I cannot see how crypto or anything will do fantastic well in during a recession and a deflationary bust as I see. So let, let's actually talk about the macro. Henrik, you, you started talking about the macro, and I know that you were the initial person who started speaking about this melt-up and this, what you called the blow-off top. And I think that kind of correlates with Raul, where, where Raul is. And Raul, you keep talking about the, the new global liquidity cycle, and I think that you've got a couple of tweets. So I'll quickly go to one of the tweets that I've got here, where I think you said, uh, we're just starting the global liquidity cycle, and it's already produced 50% gains in the NASDAQ. 
and 150% gains in Bitcoin in 2023. 2024 and 2025 are the years we should expect an acceleration in liquidity according to the everything code. Let's see. So, I mean, before we get into it, are you guys both aligned that this is the reason for the melt-up, the, the bull market, the, the great 2024 that we're about to have? Is this a shared thesis here? So that will be a question for me, whether I'm agreeing on that. Yes, absolutely. And I think some of the, the work that Raul did, uh, I think already was in 20, late 22, also on, on liquidity. I think that was spot on that you actually started to see liquidity coming back into the system. And I, I, I back then I do my business cycle model, which is um, which, which was telling me at that point that we were nowhere near a recession uh, and that, uh, you know, everybody that was calling for it was really getting that wrong. So with the liquidity coming into the system again and with the uh, the economy not falling into a recession at that point, even though people were calling that for that because of the inflation spike, well, it was pretty obvious to see that you would have a, somewhat of a strong uh, market reaction. It was just it just needed to get going. And I don't see we have seen the top of that yet. That's why I call it a blow off top, because I think the next phase of this, let's say the next three to four months will be absolutely, you know, astonishing in terms of, you know, returns on the equities and cryptos and the like. So but what when it comes we, up, just, just wait, let's one step back. Where, when you say sure. the, the beginning of the new liquidity cycle or a change in the liquidity cycle, is this to say that the Fed was taking money out of the economy and the Fed was tightening with increased interest rates? And now all of a sudden there's going to be more, and I'm not only talking about the Fed, I'm talking about the, the Japanese bank and the Chinese. And are you saying that up until now they've been taking money out of the economy and now they're going to start putting money back in the economy? Is that what this global liquidity chart, Ralph, that you're referencing here? Yeah. So this is global liquidity from all the major central banks, the, the Fed, the BOJ, the PBOC, uh, the ECB and the Bank of England. And... Um, Basically, they were all withdrawing liquidity, but I noticed that liquidity had bottomed in year-on-year measures and other forms um, back in. It actually started bottoming in June, which got me into starting to rebuy Ethereum in the lows there, and then fully confirmed the bottom to me in my measures in October, November. So that's when I really kind of loaded up in technology and the full crypto. And for me, that these are forecastable readable cycles based around the debt refi cycle so for me that's why i've got a more extended view before a downturn than henrik has because i i don't see any reason why it won't just continue generally speaking till 2025 the end of the this perfect cycles we've been having since 2008 so are we saying that all the money that the Fed put into the economy and then said they were going to take out, and I mean, there is that scary curve, I don't have it with me, but the one where it shows like the, 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 the Fed balance sheet doing something crazy. I don't have that, that, that one in front of me, but yeah, I can are we saying- that, that. So this is the Fed balance sheet in black mm-hmm. and the red is 36 months forward of the current interest payments. What that's telling you is the interest payments are set to explode or are exploding because of the COVID payments 36 months ago, the COVID debt. And what we found, this is the shorter term chart, using the longer term chart since they started QE, basically all QE has been has been monetizing past debt. So after the four-year cycle, they just monetize the debt, shove it on the balance sheet, start again. So it's been this endless four-month four-year cycle based around this. And we've got this ridiculous phase to come where they can't they can't really manage the interest payments 
without doing something. Right? You can't have rates at 5% or even 4% if you're looking at slightly longer because the maths don't work. And they've got to keep issuing to pay all the interest of the 10 trillion or whatever has to they have to roll over the next year or two. So, you know, for me, that's that's the liquidity cycle. And you do that and assets go up because you're optically debasing the denominator, the currency. So you're saying that the US has got 34 what's this, $34 trillion of, of debt and they've got to pay, is it $34 billion or $34 trillion? This is $34 trillion, my trillion. friend. Trillion $34 trillion yeah. on, of debt. And you're saying that right now there's no way at current interest rates that they can afford to pay, to pay the, the interest on this debt. Um, yeah, so what happens is when you issue debt, you've got a fixed interest rate that you've now pay, right? Yes. So four years ago, this was all done at nearly zero. And because now the they've pandemic. got to refinance the debt that's rolling over at the rates of whatever, 5%, 4%, whatever so it is. interest payments, so if they've gone from, let's say, 1% to 4%, right, that's a 300% increase in the cost of paying the interest alone. There's no way they and can afford the it. the numbers of the interest payments are so big now that their interest payments are now larger than defense spending. It's bananas. Okay, so what happens next? So how did the, how is the U.S. getting out of this? Is this why you're saying that the only way to get out of this is reduce interest rates and put more money into the system to be able to pay the interest? Yeah, that's been my core thesis for this everything code cycle is they've done the same thing every time, which is, okay, the economy slows down because rates have gone up and there's so much debt. So fine, the economy slows down a bit and they use it. It's the same time as the election cycle as well. It's all the same cycle. Bitcoin halving cycle, it's all the same time. They get interest rates down and they engineer some way of using the balance sheet. Who the hell knows how, what reason, but that's generally what they do. And that's why you know, election years tend to be pretty good years, which is why I, th this is why, and I'd love to hear your view, Henrik. That's why I still struggle to get bearish for 2025, because even if the economy slows in an election year, they'll just stimulate more. And that's, so that's the struggle I have is that, you know, if you have a blow off top and some, yeah, I've seen some of your stuff, like you could have a 1929 style thing. I'm like, I don't think you can because they just print money and optically it debases the currency. So how do you get that? Sure. But I think we're down to the point where whether we're going to see whether liquidity or the business cycle will actually come through and what will dominate one or the, uh, the, or the other. And I think what, what I see, if you look at the business cycle, and I got a few charts I can share also, I mean, we got a perfect setup for 2008 uh, scenario again, and even worse this time around. Uh, we got we got a business cycle that is now getting long in its, in its tooth. Yeah, I think we're in a new cycle, not an old cycle. I think we hit the bottom of the business cycle. Yeah, but that, that's what I want to challenge you because I don't. I think that you are. I know maybe a little too early there. Can you see my screen? Yes, we can. So you're yeah. talking about why is the recession on the cards? So can I just before we yeah. get into it? Can we just confirm, um, Raul? You you're you're saying. You're both saying that we're going to be bullish. You're both saying that the core of the bullishness is the U.S. debt and printing of more money and more liquidity and the, the beginning of the liquidity cycle. Where you guys are disagreeing is, Henrik, you think that in the end of 2024, beginning of 25, we're going to see a recession. And you've called the recession as big as the Great Depression or a kind of uh, uh, a Great Depression. Raul, you're saying no. You think it's going to go on for much longer than the end of 2024. Yeah, I think it goes on to 25, then we'll have a normal cyclical slowdown, another one of these everything code cycles, markets come off, you know, crypto corrects, etc. The only 
yeah, and we could talk about some nuances around that because there's a bunch of probabilities around it. But that's, I, I don't see how we can have asset prices down 50% in the world of of uh, debasing currency. That's my only issue. Okay, Henry, I, th I think we'll leave out the most important. Yeah, sure. So I think we're leaving out the most important part here, which is the consumer. And there's one thing that the consumer has been, you know, is, is getting hit by the, the interest payments that we see this year. So actually the Titanic hitting the iceberg here is actually the consumer getting uh, depressed by the interest payments they have now on mortgages and what else. And this is what needs to uh, to get its way through the uh, to, uh, through the business cycle. I got a couple of charts here I want to show, Raúl, also just for your you know, so you can you know relate to them and then see what you, you know whatever you get out from this. This is a business cycle that I produce, and you may not call you uh, say a lot to you, but it's uh, just to tell you that I have an indicator in place here, uh, something that I developed with the uh, with Swiss Block Technologies and uh, and the conference based on conference board um, uh, indicators and uh, economic numbers. And when we get this, uh, the, the yellow spots there, we have a crossover of the leading indicators. And if you go 120 years back in terms of these data here, every time we have this indicator here uh, calling for a recession, we get the recession. And we haven't had that yet. So it's uh, that's one thing. But I know it doesn't make a lot of sense here to sit. But what I want to show here, for instance, is the um, yield inversion. We have the 10-year minus the two-year here. And we all have been talking about that over the last year. And we, we know that that's a normal recession signal. Um, and what you look at here is going back to the 90s, we had the, when the bottom is in for the um, for the yield inversion, we actually have a, you know, a time, a period before we see the recession set in. And this time around, we, we, we had exactly that. We had the bottom there in June of this year, and now we see the steepening starting. And we know that we'll need, we'll need a little time for that because what we see there is actually, the, actually this, you know, the, the deterioration of the economy. So what I'm saying here is, that, well, we, we got until June, let's say, uh, quarter two, quarter three, where we should start to see the steepening getting even worse than what we have here. And this is one indicator. So, again, just an indicator. If we look at the, uh, if we look at the, um, the industrial production, what I look at, as I said, is momentum analysis. And what you saw into the, big into the great financial crisis here was a negative divergence here. You had, you know, momentum was coming down. We have the same thing looking, you know, looking just the same again. Again, just an indicator. But what I want to look at really is the housing market. And if you look at the NAHB here, which is the, uh, yeah, which is the housing index that I follow uh, closely, what what you have there is that when the housing market starts to deteriorate, you will have that the consumer starts to feel it. And of course, the deterioration comes because of the market rates hike, uh, the the market yields going up. And the, what we see that is later in the cycle, we see then the bottom, uh, sorry, the bottom in the unemployment rate. This is an inverted cur curve, the, um, the orange one here. And we, st we start to see uh, unemployment coming up. And we saw that into the financial crisis here. And we saw this huge decline in the NAHB. We have seen that similar pattern again here, just bigger this time around. Um, and we also saw a small spike back here in the, in the early part of uh, 2007. Now we saw that in July of 2023, we had the, uh, the top here, and then we start to descend again. What I'm seeing is a slow rollover of the unemployment rate here because of the factors that I just said. We have market yield speed going up, which is the, you know, the iceberg uh, hitting, or Titanic hitting the iceberg, and then slowly we'll see that uh, get into the real economy. What I see there is that when we have the crossover of that, and we actually already did, did that, and we don't have the real momentum behind that yet, 
Well, when we have that crossover on the unemployment, that's when we should see the spike. And I want to just show another one here, which is the uh, the rate of the, the market, uh, sorry, the, the personal interest payments that I talked about. You, what you normally see in a cycle, in the business cycle, is that when they go up, well, then you have unemployment starting to go up because you get people will start to lay off of you know expensive buying luxury goods first, and then you know as they, uh, and then you'll see the deterioration of the economy, and you see that every time, and then you get the spike in the unemployment rate. Well, guess what? This is the interest payments that we the personal interest payments that we have had uh, after the uh, the spike in in yields and market yields. So I cannot see how we can sit and say, well, we just disregard all of this. This is the business cycle, and I have the the uh, the uh, the normal uh, the normal uh, indicators uh, and the no, the normal um, recession signals in place now with the leading indicators with uh, with the market yields and so on. All this is in place, and yet we're saying, oh, but we expect liquidity to save the day. So I so agree with you, Raul. I think we're going to see a huge surge in 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 the uh, in whatever the Fed is going to come out with here in terms of liquidity, but I don't think we can beat the business cycle here. And that's why I say by not even N24, I think we're getting into this by, um, let's say, Q, Q, Q3, uh, we should be in a recession already. So I think the market will top already in yeah May or something like that. I'm interested to hear Raul's view here because my view here is that we'll go into a recession just before an election. That it just sounds, it just sounds so... Oh, we did that in 2008. We did that in 2008. And that was the last time we had a real recession. So, I mean, it's not so uncommon. We had the recession started in 2007 in, uh, in December, and then you had the uh, real fallout in September, actually just before. So, so you know, that's not wouldn't be too um, unusual. Okay, before I let Raul comment here, when you say that there's going to be a global melt-up and a blow-off top, you're saying that there's six months left until we get this global top. How how intense do you think the next six months are going to be? Like if if I were to to pull up a chart of the of the Nasdaq um, or the let's let's look at the US Tech US Tech 100. Just let's use that as an indicator, which is now trading um, 16,800, 16, Call it what? Like how 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 much more does this go by June? Because you keep saying blow off top. Like I know blow off top like an altcoin does a blow off top. It's like parabolic. It's ridiculous. Is that what you're thinking for global markets? Absolutely, because I think that the soft landing narrative is going to win, uh, is going to be dominating over the next coming weeks and months here. Actually, I was predicting that to come if you go back uh, th six months or nine months ago. And and now we start to see it and everybody starts to think, well, they manufactured this uh, soft landing and now liquidity will come in and we are going to get a uh, fantastic market. And everybody will be, you know, uh, positively, you know, s s to see that the market actually is going to move up really quickly. But I'm thinking this, you know, the, the light ahead that we're seeing is actually the freight, freight train coming right against us. And, and I cannot see how we will avoid this this time around. And especially with the, as I said, the first indicator that I showed is not something that is common to a lot of people, but, but 120 years going back in time and you have never had a false signal, never. So and even it even got Corona correct, right? So I, I, I think we are being a bit too optimistic on what liquidity can do. And I think the business cycles, which are driven by the housing market, and we know when we have the housing declines, we have housing market actually deteriorating, like what we have seen this time around. These are the times when we have the hardest uh, uh, recessions. That's what history tells us. So the consumer housing markets are not well, and these are just slowly seeping into the real economy. The only reason why we haven't seen the recession so far, as I see it, is because of the labor market in the U.S., 
And the thing is, after the after Corona, you had all this stimulus coming out, and every company around the world was doing fantastically. And so they build up their capacity, and now they've been sitting on their hands and saying, "Oh, we didn't right, really see the demand coming back, so we'll just wait another you know six months and see how things are going before we start laying pe people off." And that's why we have seen this you know stubbornly strong labor market so far. But I'm still saying I will I will you know. Uh, cheer for the uh, I, I think that the business cycle will come through and the liquidity will not be able to hold it up but but absolutely they're going to pure a lot of liquidity on this and that's going to create another situation i think they're going to bounce the economy but then they're going to bring it right into a stagflationary situation and that's it will be completely different so i think we have a double you know first a deflationary bust which will be met by liquidity then we'll have a bounce and then we'll see that we actually get a stagflation which will be much more difficult for them to to uh to do something about. Okay, Raul, what, what do you think? I mean, it's, diff it's different from your thesis. Yeah, it's very different. It's 180 degree opposite, but there's several people with that same thesis. <clears throat> and I, I look at the housing market and year on year, the rate of change of housing is actually now stabilized and sort of rising with the forward looking indicators for ISM. And also most of the interest payment charts, a lot of that is mortgages and the mortgage stuff is fixed rates. So there's actually a very small amount amount of that 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 seems to be an issue going forward so i'm not overly concerned by that when i look at the business cycle i use the uh, ism survey institute of supply management you know i've got that, that goes back to 1947 and you can use the treasury survey that goes back to uh 1870 works pretty well um gives you a decent idea so here's how i just i haven't I'm just using my recent GMI monthly and I haven't got all the full economic charts in this, but basically there's a very nice cycle, which is the top chart in black, which is the ISM. And this is this everything code every four year cycle or every, every 36 months. Now, when the ISM gets below 50, you're starting to look for a recession. It's been below 50 all year. Uh, most of the forward looking indicators were showing this all through 2022 that we should be slow now. Now, the question is, is do we get some other events that ignoring the COVID? Is there something that could create a weaker economic cycle than regular, considering the Fed are now stopping the rate rises? Now, they did that also in 2008, somebody might say. But the point being is, what is the systemic shock here that causes a freeze up of the collateral system that can't be solved by liquidity? So... If I look at the forward-looking indicator just by using the ISM alone, just inverting it, because it's such a perfect cycle right now, we've been following this pattern all the way. So my idea of the business cycle, and we use financial conditions index and um, several hundred charts based around the business cycle, actually several thousand, is for us, the business cycle just gets stronger from here on in. That we, whatever, whether we got a recession or didn't get a recession, it was priced into growth assets last year uh, in 2022. And in 2023, it got priced into stuff like the Russell 2000 and cyclicals. And I think most of it should continue higher. So I don't really see the evidence of it being a late cycle. That to me, if I look at this chart, that looks like we finished the cycle. The forward-looking indicator stuff like ISM new orders, orders to inventories has been rising that's always signaled the bottom. The new orders has always been, has signaled the bottom. So I'm pretty sanguine about the risk of something larger happening here that could derail, derail the economy. 
what you saw back into was absolutely as you said that's fed i think they stopped the the rate hiking cycle in 2006 already and uh, and as you said they i mean they they tried to manufacture again you know the the whole business cycle and and what we saw there was that by the end of it we really saw that it was the housing market the deterioration and i know we had speculation around that time in the housing market but, um but we but we also do have speculation today yeah but the and, key difference is back in 2008 we didn't have the magic cowbell we didn't have what? money printing so interest what? rates are a slow blunt tool money printing is instantaneous so I think everybody was shocked by what happened at COVID. They shut the entire world for three months. The market went down for precisely four weeks and then rocketed going forwards. Why did it rocket? Because if you deflate the, uh, the price by the amount the balance sheet went, it was just debasement of currency. I don't see how you can have 2008 once you've got the money printer. Well, if money printing was the the uh, the solution, I'm sure Weimar Republic would have been a much better, you know, um, but uh, I mean, you know, had a much better faith than it did. So I, I don't think money printing will actually be the the uh, will be the saver of the day here. And I think you actually will see now this time around that the free lunch is over. So you can do money printing. You all um, you had it before the French Revolution. Also, you had positive effects from money printing back then as well. So money printing will help you so far because it will get people to start spending. It will get people to start taking on debt. But the problem with this time around will be that people already are in debt. And they saw how hard they can get hit by these that the high debt level because when the interest rate starts to go up. So if you're imagining a situation now that they are going to lose their job, and I think you're going – I mean, we are slowly seeing the, the, the rounding bottom on the uh, – on the, uh, in unemployment curve, I, I think when people starting to get unemployed here, they will be more cautious about, you know, getting new debt or uh, starting to spend money again. So all the money printing theory is based on people actually starting to do this. And I think that is where we had the free lunch, because that is where it was easy to do it the first time around. And wow. And also interest rates were, you know, uh, it was it was easy to manufacture that kind of move. And with the COVID thing, I mean, the kind of move that they went into with, uh, you know, the, the the stimulus that we we saw from around the world, you know, dwarfed uh, what we had in the after the Second World War with the martial aid and everything. I think if they're going to do in, go in with that again, I think they'll be a little more cautious because they can. Uh, once again, we can see this stagflationary kind of environment. They almost triggered the last time. But why, where, does stag, where does stagflation come from? Where do you get the idea that inflation goes up? Um, so, stack, first of all, because I think that what you're going to see this time around, if you start to throw money around it or throw money at it again, you'll start to see exactly what inflation is, how it's really created when you start to see a lot of money chasing a few goods. And if people do not, if it doesn't trigger into the real economy, if it doesn't get into people actually starting to spend, then it will not trigger, you know, creation of jobs and the likes. So I think what you the stagflation will come later on. It's not that I'm saying that's not the first phase. The first phase will be a normal business cycle contracting, and I think it's going to be much worse than you actually. I mean, the the black swan that you are you are uh, you, you say we, I can't see why we, we why we should get that when we have all the liquidity. And well, you know, I I think we'll be surprised and the the amount of money and the amount of you know. Uh, challenges that are, that we already have out there. Uh, we can just look to China. We can look to Europe. I mean, I mean it doesn't need to be in the U.S. Um, that they will eventually, you know, cause the deflationary bust, and then the response from the Fed will then create a stagflationary world. 
So where do I see inflation, uh, the stagflation uh, come from when inflation going up? Well, because I think, you know, they have manufactured over the years with all the stimulus, with all the, the money printing to actually, you know, put in what I call a secular bottom in inflation. Not already, but by the, the, the turn of the next bottom, I think we're going to see something quite different. Okay. I Does mean, it make sense? Well, any, any further? Um, look, everything has a possibility and everything has a probability. Um, I don't see where the systemic problem is. We all understand how big the debt is, but we figured out, you know, don't forget houses, households have been deleveraging now since 2008. Corporates access the bond market and there's still a starvation for yield that comes out of the pension funds that supports it. And if we look at what the Federal Reserve are doing, they want to lower interest rates anyway. And they've been injecting liquidity into the system. I just have a faith that this, everything changed in 2008 and that most people don't understand this. And maybe I'm wrong. Um, but 2008 was a watershed moment in the change of how things work. So what they're doing is mutualizing um, the payment of interest rates amongst the people by clipping the currency, essentially, by debasing the currency. So it's not pushing money into the system, giving us more money to spend. It's the optical thing, like the Venezuelan stock market, the yeah. currency devalues, the price goes up, right? Same with the Weimar Republic. When you look at the, the German stock market, it went up in a straight line. Mm. Um, so that's what happens, but this is the global reserve currency. So there's a lot of bigger games at play here. And I think everybody in every single central bank is fully aware of the game that they're playing, which is we cannot allow the price of collateral to go bust, right? Because the collateral went bust in 2008, which is the housing market, and it brought everything down because we have very little collateral and lots of debt. And we've seen this in the crypto markets in 2022, right? We all live this, not enough collateral, too much debt, the whole fucking thing blows up. <laughs> it's my view that the, uh, that the central banks are fully aware of that and so the way to avoid it is the management of the issuance of currency as you say it's not a good thing but it's not fast enough to create the spiral it's just a 15 percent debasement a year of currency which is makes our purchasing power actually very difficult it's very different to inflation so i am i think it's very difficult to get rid of the mega trends of technology right now um and with a liquidity cycle backing it but we have to see right you could you could be right it, we could be back yeah, can i be, before you carry on can i can i just ask um in terms of interest rate cuts this year i mean you guys are both talking about about interest rates being cut at some point next year i i went onto this and i saw that the market's expecting a cut in march and then a cut in may and then a cut in june and then a cut in july and then no cut in september but i mean is this a little bit optimistic do you think by the market do you think the market expectation for the decline of interest rates is, is a little optimistic. To me, it seems a little optimistic. Well, if Henrik's right, it's not optimistic enough. Absolutely not. Exactly. Well, this, yeah. is, this is exactly right. They're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to cut it. They'll cut it really quick uh, and they will be forced to. And if you look at the uh, normally you see the, the, the pace where you see interest rates are rising or the market rates are rising, you'll see them coming down even quicker. So I think you're going to see a tremendous decline in market rates, market yields over the next coming months here. Um, into the late of 24, it'll go. It'll be really quick, and the Fed will try to follow suit. So they will have to cut a lot by the end of. And the reason why you do that, and when you see market yields coming down like that, is because you're in a recession. 
So we are not so, we are not in the recession yet, and and that's also what the indicators that I follow. We we are clearly not because of the of the uh, of the labor market, but all the indicators are there in place. And if we disregard that and say, well, oh, well, this time around liquidity is going to to save us, and and maybe also Raul, as you say, technology. I mean, I'm a huge bull in terms of you know technology and AI and all that, but it's not going to save us for the next. I mean, this Titanic, about, this boat has. What would what would invalidate your thesis? Like if 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 something happens, what what do you think? What do you see now could invalidate your thesis? Like, what what would be the telltale sign that well, ma- maybe maybe you're wrong and maybe Raul's right? Well, in, in terms of the market, well, I need to see that. The, first of all, I am I am bearish the dollar at this point. I think that's what's going to drive the whole uh, the whole blow off top as well. So I think we're going to see Dixie going down to around ninety. Um, but but after that, I think think we have a huge move in, in the Dixie higher. If I'm wrong on that and the dollar continues to go lower or stay low, that will be an indication. But that's not what my models tell me. So so I think that is that is one thing. Um, I I I was 100% expecting this bounce in the economy that we see, because we 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 saw that in the housing market. We actually saw that that it would come. It would it, you know it it would be coming and uh, and that was because you saw um you saw inflation coming down and then you'll see the the positive feedback look into the economy but the problem is the consumer has been have been hit already and if you look at you know some of the indicators with luxury goods and things that have been cut off of now you start to see that the consumer are cutting these way these things off first just simply to be able to to pay for their mortgage loans and, and the likes and that will slowly seep into the rest of the economy so so um if if we start if we start to see that um, if we don't see initial claims as I expect not the next two months or three months but I expect initial claims and starting to to pick up and I start and I expect the uh, you know job creation to start to slow well if we do not see that within the next six months well then at least we could you know move into twenty five or something but I just don't see we have much time anymore okay. I mean, because there are so many indicators telling us that it should be by at least Q three we should be there. So, Raul, in your thesis, we, we, we continue to run through 2024 and we continue to run through 2025. At the end of, of the cycle, when is the end of your cycle, Raul? When do you see the market cooling down in, in, your, in your pattern? Look, look, there's a probability that you could front-end load something crazy, and then in which case some of these riskier markets don't follow through the rest of the business cycle. I give that a 20% chance. I give a 20, a 60% chance that this is just the normal cycle that we know from crypto and macro. You know, we tack on another 100% plus in the NASDAQ and, you know, we tack on another 500% in crypto plus, you know, just across, broadly across the board. Um, and there's the other thing, which is this is going to be a much bigger bubble into 2025 because kind of all the elements are in line. Now, I think there's a 20% chance of that. That could have a longer hangover for the next cycle, but I don't see the cycle has changed here. It's been like clockwork based around the debt cycle. It's been managed the same way every single time is every single time uh, interest rates go up, growth slows, the Fed or one of the other central banks stimulates. uh, It kind of bottoms the cycle out. I think most assets priced in a recession last year in 2022. Crypto certainly did. The year-on-year rate of change of crypto and uh, the NASDAQ were perfectly in line with our financial conditions index. Financial conditions index is loosening rapidly and everything follows that. 
All right. So look, I think um, we're out of time, but I think what time will tell. So I think what, luckily in this case, the time span that we need is about six months. So I, re, I think we'll meet again in six months and we will then have a discussion as to whether Henrik, whether you believe that your thesis has got a few more months to play out, or maybe you'll tap out and say that you're, you're, you're in, in Ral's camp and Ral, maybe the other way around, maybe we'll meet again in six months and you'll say Henrik was right. What we will do is we'll be back here in six months and we'll be doing this. We've uh, all been wrong many times, my friend. We've all been wrong yes. many times. And, and the one thing I'm glad about is that we're all um, excited about the first six months of the year. So it's almost like you can say, well, look, we'll worry about the hangover afterwards. But for now, it's time to get to the party. And on that note, since it is Friday, it is time to get to the party. Ral, thank you so much. Henrik, thank you so, so, so much. We'll see you guys again very, very soon. And to the Banter fam, it is Friday. Have a brilliant, brilliant weekend. Um, since you know that we've had a great week, go and have a party and uh, worry about the hangover again in six months. See you guys again next week. Until then, trade well, my friends. 